Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, October 22, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, historians Sean Wilentz and legal expert Akil Ridamar debate the role that slavery played in the creation of the Electoral College. Well, good evening to you all. Um, this is a, a debate-style format, and I'm going first because um, I have really the, the burden of proof in a way, the affirmative case. I'll be arguing that slavery was an important part of the uh, thinking behind the uh, origins of the Electoral College and especially um, its perpetuation uh, uh, during the uh, early republic um, and in connection with the Twelfth Amendment. The Electoral College that we actually have today is more a feature of the Twelfth Amendment than Article Two. Um, uh, and I'll talk for about ten minutes. Then Sean will get up. Then we'll have some. Ex- uh, we'll we'll do a one round of exchanges and then a back and forth conversation. It's such an honor to be with uh, Sean. Um, and uh, we will. I hope today a sort of uh, model. Um, uh, vigorous but very uh, friendly and mutual respectful um, engagement. He knows an awful lot, um, and we have different views. Um, so uh, my wife usually, when I um, uh, leave um, a home for events like this, she makes sure that uh, my socks match and uh-huh. um, and and that my hair is, believe it or not, combed. Um, and and the last word she always tells me as I leave her, "Don't fight." Um, so. Um, uh, So, um, here are the arguments that many people have been taught about why we have the Electoral College. Um, So, I'm going to be focusing, as lawyers do, law-trained people do, on uh, effect, purpose, um, uh, foreseeability, structure. So, um, uh, why? History is multi-causal. There are many things going on. Um, Here are the stories you've heard. Electoral College um, is basically... Uh, because they don't, uh, the framers didn't really love democracy. They wanted these wise electors to substitute their independent judgment. Um, and I say, no, that's not really the story because they put the Constitution to a vote, more democratic than ever before. In eight of the 13 states, property qualifications are lowered or eliminated compared to what they were ordinarily. They um, uh, adopt a House of Representatives that's directly elected. That wasn't true under the Articles Confederation. They believe in direct election of governors. Many of the Federalists do. And in five states, there's direct election of governors. And the Electoral College is not some group of really super wise people substituting their judgment. Um, it's not a college. Princeton is a college. Yale's a college. Um, uh, these guys are basically from the beginning. Nobody's from nowhere who never did nothing. Um, uh, they don't exercise independent judgment really from the beginning. Um, the, the smartest people politically in the state aren't even allowed to be electors, the senators and the representatives. And if you doubt that, just actually try to think about four electors in all of American history who actually exercise independent judgment. And I don't think you can. You can think of a, a senator and a representative, a governor, a president, a vice president, but, but really no electors who are exercising independent judgment. That's not really true. From the beginning, they're basically pre-pledged or at the 
begin at the very beginning, everyone's going to vote for Washington, no matter what. Um, he's uh, unanimously elected and re-elected. So I don't think it's actually that reason. You could say, oh, well, uh, they didn't really have a sense of who would be a good president. Maybe that a sense of who would be a good governor, who would be a good um, uh, uh, member of the House of Representatives, but they didn't have a sense of national um, uh, political figures. Uh, well, you do know who the incumbent is, and uh, uh, elections are typically referendum on the incumbent, and once political parties emerge, as they do very quickly, you do kind of have a sense of what, what different folks stand for. Um, and at the beginning, everyone knows Washington. So I don't think we have the Electoral College because it's some sort of um, uh, anti-democracy feature. I don't think we have it because it's a balance between big and small states, which is what you've been taught. All the early presidents come from big states. Um, eight of the first nine uh, presidential elections are won by a, a slaveholding uh, plantation-owning Virginian. Um, and uh, um, in all of American history, um, the big state guy basically always wins or, and or is the runner-up. Um, uh, the other early elections are won by Massachusetts people, who, and Massachusetts is the second or third biggest state, depending on how you count. In all of American history, there are three big state, uh, small state presidents, Bill Clinton, uh, Franklin Pierce, uh, um, uh, Zachary Taylor, that's it. So if it's about a big state, small state balance, the framers were not so bright, and, and they were very bright. That's not what they're trying to do. Um, uh, and, uh, um, and the the real division in America, as James Madison recognizes early on, is not between big and small states. That's maybe House versus Senate, but the real divisions in America aren't today and always have been between um, uh, the North and the South, at the founding because of slavery, between the coasts and, and the center, and between cities and uh, rural areas. Those, are all, those have been the, the, the big salient divisions in America, and the Electoral College is about North-South, uh, primarily. Um, so. Um, uh, we've got uh, some slides, and uh, quite interesting, I think Sean and I independently selected some pretty similar slides, and so um, I'll show you some of them, um, and, and see Sean's and mine are very, very similar indeed. Um, so that's uh, one from Sean, and uh, as you see it, it'll map um, two that I'm putting up. Um, so at Philadelphia, the guy who actually um, uh, is the preeminent lawyer in America, uh, James Wilson, uh, one of six people to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He's going to be one of, uh, uh, Wilson, uh, one of uh, um, Washington's first justices. says, you know, we really should actually have direct election of the president, the same way the best states have direct election for the governor. And the presidency is modeled on the, on the Massachusetts Constitution. It's the one constitution that actually gives the governor a veto. Um, it's Put, it's directly ratified by the people. The U.S. Constitution is, is modeled on that in some very important ways, um, and the presidency is definitely modeled on the Massachusetts governorship, and there's direct election. And Wilson says, you know, that's what we should do. Um, and James Madison says, you know, Jim, they're both Jim, um, you're right, basically, and this is Sean's um, uh, um, uh, slide, but I've been doing the math, here's a problem, and this is what Sean himself highlighted in, in yellow, because he's not going to try to hide anything for, from you, and, and nor am I, because I think we're actually going to probably agree more than we disagree. Oh, no, we don't. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so um, here's the problem, um, and that's in the, in the yellow. Um, if there's direct election, the South is going to lose every time because slaves don't vote. 
Um, and, uh, um, and he says it, and then other people actually pick up on it. You don't need to say it 10 times uh, behind closed doors. The Southerners get the point that the math won't work so well for them if there's direct election. And now you can see why, actually, um, Virginia's going to be the big winner. Um, it has um, uh, uh, lots of slaves, and it gets to count slaves through an electoral college system, uh, albeit at a three-fifths discount. So if, if you just have direct election, slaves don't vote. Um, uh, Pennsylvania will do very well. It has a lot of free people and a lot of voters. By 1800, Pennsylvania has more um, uh, 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 vo uh, free, uh, voters than uh, Virginia, but fewer electoral votes, because Virginia has all these extra slaves that it gets to count. And for eight of the first nine elections, you see it's a slave holding Virginian. So Madison says this at the beginning. Others pick up on it. We can go over that more in the, um, uh, in the second round. Um, uh, not everyone understands this um, at the founding, that this is um, a huge advantage because of um, the three-fifths clause. It's going to be a big boost to the South. But everyone does understand this, I believe, after the first couple of presidential elections, which aren't between big states and small states. They're between North and South. Here's yeah. Um, uh, everyone votes for Washington, but then uh, the two champions emerge, uh, uh, Jefferson and Adams. Jefferson is a southerner, and he gets the votes from the south. Adams is a northerner, and he gets the votes from the north. And the first time around, Adams wins. That's 1796. And you see, America isn't dividing big versus small. It's basically dividing north against south. Um, and then the next uh, slide, this is 1800, and, and New York flips. New York is the Ohio um, of the founding. It's where North meets South. It's a slave state, actually, at the time. Um, and um, uh, Aaron Burr is now is siding with, with Jefferson. And um, uh, you take away the extra electoral votes uh, created by three-fifths. And, um, uh, and this is where Sean, I think, may disagree. Um, uh, uh, Adams wins that second election um, uh, by four rather than losing it by um, eight electoral votes. That's at least what the people at the time say. Sean may have a different set of math, but I can promise you all these House members and senators, and I'll read you their quotes the next time around, um, actually say, Mr. Jefferson is riding into the executive mansion on the backs of his slaves. This is Gary Wills' book, Negro President. He's getting extra votes because these southern states have slavery, and that's giving him an advantage in the Electoral College. And the system is changed with the 12th Amendment um, so that now we have separate votes for president and vice president. Uh, so it's not the electoral college system that the founders gave us. So the Constitution is amended with the 12th Amendment, um, and it's amended to have a separate vote for president, vice president, but it's not amended to undo the slavery bias, even though all sorts of New England people, and I'll give you the quotes, actually say, as long as we're amending the Constitution and fixing this problem of Jefferson and Burr tying and, and all the problems created by tie votes between two people of the same political party, as long as we're fixing that, let's fix the pro-slavery bias as well. Um, and the Jeffersonians say, no, thank you. We don't want to do that. We like it just fine as is. Oh, okay. I've set, I've set forth just a, a bit of this. Um, I want to um, hand it over. But until Lincoln, every single president is basically a Southerner or a Northern man of Southern sympathies. Um, uh, John Adams, is, his running mate's a South Carolinian. John Quincy Adams, his vice president, is um, uh, uh, 
uh, uh, uh, Calhoun. Um, I kept thinking Hopper, because that's a Yale joke. They, they renamed Calhoun Hopper at that residential college, John C. Calhoun. So um, until Lincoln, no president says, as president, slavery's wrong and we should eventually get rid of it. No cabinet member, Bill Lincoln, says slavery's wrong and we should eventually get rid of it. And that's because slavery is built in a pretty big way into the Electoral College through the three-fifths class. You're getting extra seats because you have extra slaves. And that's the pro-slavery bias. Um, and now my friend Sean will tell you his point of view. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Akil. It is an honor to be here with my friend Akil, from whom I've really learned a lot. Um, I'm an historian, so I talk about facts. <laughs> I am here to say, I mean, some of what you just heard is true. Don't, don't fight. I'm not fighting. <laughs> but with all due respects, I mean, I think that the, I, I truly believe this more and more, that the idea that the Electoral College was a slaveholder's ploy is flat out one of the most ludicrous historical claims ever made about the U.S. Constitution. And that is saying a lot, given all the things that I've had to read. Just to cut to the chase, I mean, I won't have much time to talk about it all. Um, just to cut to the chase is the fact that the pro-slavery states, the slave states of the Deep South, at the Constitutional Convention, repeatedly voted against the Electoral College. This was not a clever subterfuge. The slaveholders adamantly opposed what Akil and others claims was a slaveholder's ploy. And they did so for reasons that had nothing to do with slavery. This is not a matter of interpretation. It is a plain matter of fact. But it is among the facts that the arguments that you've just heard actually suppresses, sad to say. So there are these three basic areas, and, and Akil outlined them very well. What happened in 1787, what happened in 1800, and then what happened after 1800. And in all three instances, the arguments just doesn't hold up. So, as you just saw, as, as Akil just explained to you, his argument really rests on a speech that Madison made at the Constitutional Convention on July 19th, 1787. This is, this is the smoking speech. Okay? The smoking speech. Um, except, it, unlike a smoking gun, it's, it's a pop gun, if it's anything else, because it doesn't make sense. Now, Akil, I want to make sure, sir, that I'm getting your argument right, because I don't want to in any way caricature it. But I think you're saying, you're saying that Madison explained to the convention that the South was holding out against direct election of the president because of the slavery issue, right? That with direct voting, the South would never win the presidency because their slaves couldn't vote. Supposedly, Madison suggested instead an indirect uh, method of voting which might protect their interests by giving the slaveholding states a bonus, which might be the three-fifths clause down the line. And that indirect method was the germ of the Electoral College, which indeed gave the slaveholding states a bonus. So hence, the Electoral College was a slaveholder's ploy. Is that right? For the first part. First my, part. My main emphasis is actually the 12th Amendment. We can talk about the 12th Amendment, but I want to get to 70. I'm not going to have time to do 1800 and 183, but I'm going to do 787. Ah. Okay, so we'll just start with that. <laughs> That's wrong. 
right down to the simple order of events, which just isn't kept straight. Now, let's, let me back up for a sec. In 1787, the convention considered three methods for choosing the president. One, having Congress do it. Two, direct popular elections. And three, some indirect system of electors. Okay? Those are the three things that they debate. Near the outset of the convention, the delegates assigned the job to Congress. Okay? Very early on, they say the Congress is going to pick the executive. And once the three-fifths rule is adopted, that's going to give the slave states a bonus in selecting the president. That was there all along. There was nothing deceptive about it. So long as authority for selecting the president was given to Congress, the three-fifths rule would apply to the presidency as well, which I should say was less than the slaveholders demanded and less than they thought that they deserved. Okay. On July 17th, 1787, two days before the speech, two days before Madison's smoking speech, a small number of delegates proposed instead direct popular election of the president. They thought that the system then in place, having Congress do it, would make the executive branch too dependent on the legislative branch. On that same day, oh, among those who was most conspicuously supporting the direct election plan was James Madison, the man who supposedly killed it all. On that same day, July 17th, the convention took a vote on the matter, and the supporters of direct elections got crushed. Again, it had nothing to do with slavery. It had everything to do with fear of direct democracy. George Mason of Virginia likened leaving the choice of a president to the mass of voters to referring, quote, a trial of, by colors to a blind man. This was the issue, and the issue was not a sectional matter. Any doubt about that became clear in the vote as, the ele- as direct election was defeated overwhelmingly nine states to one. Even Massachusetts, the one state where, no slaves, where there were no slaves at all, which by the logic of Akeel's argument stood to gain the most from direct election, voted against it. All right. Two days later, July 19th, here is the smoking speech. Madison, explicitly smarting, he says so, from the defeat of the direct election system, gave that speech. But you have to look at the context of the speech. Madison was not attempting to push through an an indirect Um, electoral system as an alternative to direct elections, direct election was, for all intents and purposes, dead. Dead as a doornail. The system he was offering was something that he and others who backed direct elections were seizing upon, a compromise between congressional selection, which they didn't like, which was in place, and direct election, which had been defeated. What was this indirect system that Madison was talking about? Well the state legislatures would choose independent electors who would actually elect the president. According to one proposal, the allotments would be based on total state representation, total state population, rather, giving the slaveholders holding states even more than the three-fifths bonus. So what did the smoking speech really mean when read in historical context, not plucked out? At this point in the debate, Madison was trying to sway the southern states by noting how the compromise did not contain some of the disadvantages of the direct system he had favored. Can we have the slide? Actually, I have a slide there of the speech itself. A 
a select. This yeah. is the. Yeah, you've got the clicker and just advance. Oh, what do I? How do I do that? Uh, push the green button, the green arrow. Green arrow. Yeah. Ugh. Oh. <laughs> Hold my time. Stop the clock. Okay. okay. This. Let's, we'll just do that. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Okay. Good. So this is the selection from the speech. This is the smoking speech. And if you look through it, you can see, if you read the end just out of, out of, out of context, yeah, I mean, it sounds like Akil is right. But in context, no. What does the speech mean? At this point in the debate, Madison was trying to sway the southern states by noting how the compromise did not contain some of the disadvantages. He won't have the, first of all, what he says first is, the North has a more liberal suffrage. That's a problem with direct elections. Not slavery, it's about the fact that the northern states have a much more liberal suffrage. Then he refers quickly and pass in, you know, at the end of it to the question of slavery. Okay, he's saying, yeah, the system I'm devising doesn't have those problems. Basically, Madison was telling the South, you may not have liked direct popular voting as an alternative to congressional selection, but this compromise doesn't have those disadvantages. We're not like direct elections, even though I thought that was a better idea. And though he didn't say so in the speech, the slaveholding states possibly stood to gain even more of a voice in selecting the president under the compromise system, certainly no less. In short, Madison pointed out, by giving up the congressional system they favored in favor of his compromise, the slaveholding states would have, if anything, more power over selecting the president. By Akil's logic, the slaveholders especially in the Lower South, should have leapt at that offer. But they rejected it. As it happened later that day, July 19th, Madison and the other supporters of the compromise actually got the convention to agree, the convention majority, to agree to their compromise. But the Lower South states, to agree basically to the Electoral College, what was going to become the Electoral College. But the Lower South states, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, voted against that system. They wanted to keep the power in the hands of the Congress as a check on popular democracy, even if it meant giving them fewer numbers in selecting the president. Which is to say that the most vociferously pro-slavery slaveholders adamantly opposed what Akil wants us to believe was a slaveholder's ploy. Which is to say that the argument is nonsense. What happened next is even more nonsensical. For a few days later, the Lower South pro-slavery states regrouped and led the counterattack which pulled down the Electoral College solution and restored the congressional system. Well, I, I don't have much more time. I, don't, we can, I can go on about this. The story of how we actually ended up with the Electoral College only further proves my point, as does the story of 1800, as is the story of 1804 and everything afterwards. But let's talk about that now. Instead of my going on and on about it, let's have a conversation about it, and we can take it from there. Great. Thanks so much. So, so I agree we should really focus first and foremost, actually, on the experience of 1800 to 1804. Here are the reasons why we should do that. The Electoral College that you have today is not the one crafted at Philadelphia. 
It's, uh, you vote separately for president and vice president. It's the one, the heart of the 12th Amendment. So that's one reason. Second, by the time of the 12th Amendment, Americans can see very dramatically that America is not dividing big state versus small states, dividing north and south. They've had a whole bunch of elections to see the system in operation. And very selfishly and personally, because I have always emphasized the 12th Amendment argument above all others. Um, and you know, so it's my idea. Um, and, uh, um, and I'll give you now the quotes. Because we amend the Constitution, and the Northerners say again and again and again, we are not focusing on the pro-slavery bias. So here's actually um, the, a quotation from a New England paper. Mr. Jefferson is riding into the Temple of Liberty on the shoulders of slaves. That's a direct quote. This is all from page 346 of this book that you have to read. Um, America's Constitution, a biography. So, um, and they say there are 12 extra electoral votes because of three-fifths because of slavery. And in the next cycle, it's going to be 18. Um, and so, here, uh, so here's um, Congr uh, uh, Connecticut Congressman Samuel Dana. He says, if we're going to talk about amendments, we should talk about, quote, whether the apportionment of presidential electors should be in proportion to the whites or in proportion to the whites compounded with slaves. Okay, then we have Seth Hastings, he's from Massachusetts, and he says, um, uh, uh, quote, we should have a, a, a system in which um, there's an equal representation of free citizens and free citizens only, unquote, thereby undoing the Philadelphia, quote, compromise by which one part of the union has obtained a great and, in my opinion, unjust advantage over other parts of the union, a compromise, sir, by which the southern states have gained a very considerable increase by representatives and electors founded solely upon their numerous black population. And he's talking about slaves, not free blacks, of course. Echoing his, that's all a quote. Echoing his colleague, here's a, a fellow Bay Stater, Samuel Thatcher, who chafed at the, quote, the peculiar inequality, note the pun, the reference to the peculiar institution, between regions created by, quote, the representation of slaves who would, Again, quote, add 18 electors of president and vice president at the next election. So that's all in the House. Here's in the Senate, New Hampshire Senator William Plumer likewise called attention to, quote, the 18 additional electors and representatives, created, uh, unquote, created by chattel slavery. Quote, will you, by this amendment, lessen the weight and influence of the eastern states, that would be north, because the, east, uh, the northern states are also further to the east, in your constitution. Shall property in one part of the union give an increase to electors, by property means slaves, and be wholly excluded in other states? Why are you counting slaves rather than jewelry and real estate and um, all sorts of other chattel and stocks and bonds? You're counting only one kind of property, you see, property in human beings, um, which favor the South, and not property in other regions. Can this be right? So, so again and again and again, when people see, actually, how this is unfolded, they say, ooh, three-fifths is a big, big benefit to the South. Now, 
Sean says, well, how about um, congressional election? Congressional election is going to have the same three-fifths problem, don't you see? Because the number of electors is based on the number of House members and senators, and House members are um, uh, based on the, the three-fifths compromise. So, so that's not going to sensibly adjudicate. They're both pro-slavery. If, if, if Congress decided it or if they're independent electors, direct election would avoid that George Mason, Blindman. Well, if, if people can't, are too stupid to pick um, who their chief executive is, Mr. Mason, why do five states have direct election of governors? And today, every state has that. So apparently, all we blind men and today blind women are able to actually pick um, a chief executive. So, so the, the, that argument doesn't really explain why you would actually favor, as many Federalists do, direct election of governors. And from the beginning, actually, we move away from state legislative uh, election of governors in some of the states toward direct election of governors, such that actually now all states have direct election of governors. I'm going to tell you one other thing about direct election of governors, because it's a big reform. And here's the one. What, can you guess which is the last state to move? South Carolina, and the reason why is because at the state level, when you have state legislative selection of governors, that actually advantages um, the slave-holding parts of South Carolina, some of which are actually counted, in which slaves are counted, not just at three-fifths, but actually at a, at a full five-fifths. Um, so direct election actually avoids the, the, the counting of slaves in a way that these, these other systems don't. And if the, these other systems are really... Um, uh, 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 great, these uh, um, legislative election systems or electoral college systems. Why today does every state pick its governor one person, one vote? Now, we haven't talked about whether we should change our system today. Maybe that'll come up in, in, in the rest of the conversation. I actually believe there are reasons to keep the existing system. Um, and there are factors above and beyond slavery that are actually part of the equation. But don't be confused here at all. Um, they said again and again and again, you know, that these people having seen four presidential elections, there's a real pro-slavery bias in this system. As long as we're fixing the system, let's fix that as well as the other problems. And that's the electoral college we have today, not actually the one at Philadelphia. So that's all prologue. I, I put it in because I think it's interesting. But my argument is fundamentally a 12th Amendment argument. And happily, Sean has said nothing about that. And he's only got five minutes left. <laughs> Thanks for that fascinating discussion of direct election of governors, which has nothing to do with the Electoral College. Um, and you're wrong about 18.4, but we'll get to that in a sec. Can I have the slide for 1800, please? Oh, there it is. Is that it? Okay, the election of 1800. The problem, uh, 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 Amar, is that you've fallen for the same Federalist canard <laughs> that Gary Wills fell for. I mean, it's quite true that if you take the added uh, three-fifths votes in the Electoral College, the, the, the extra southern votes, state votes, they got because of the three-fifths clause, yes, that's the margin of Jefferson's victory. That's a valid way of looking at it. What got Jefferson elected was New York. It was New York. And New York wasn't voting for him because of slavery. New York was voting for him because they hated the Alien and Sedition Acts, because they hated what the Federalists had come to. He also got elected because of Pennsylvania. 
the keystone in the Republican arch. Now, you notice what happened in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania seemed split. Jefferson and the Republicans swept Pennsylvania. They swept Pennsylvania. But through a bit of chicanery, the Federalists managed to get the electoral vote divided so that they would get seven votes and the Republicans would only get eight. That's a switch of 14 electoral votes. If you take away the three-fifths clause, as I suppose we would all like to have been done, but let's suppose we get rid of that and get rid of the chicanery, Jefferson still wins. If you keep the three-fifths clause, or rather, if you get rid of the three-fifths clause, but you keep the chicanery, then the Jeffersonians can say, you stole the election. And they would have been right. And there would have been a political crisis unlike any other that we've experienced until now. <laughs> Third point, what's the alternative to the Electoral College? Direct election. Well, given the fact that three of the four most populous states in America went overwhelmingly for Jefferson, I would have loved to see that election, a direct election, if I were a Jeffersonian. So if the alternative, the point is the wrong man was not elected president in 1800. But the Federalist canard would have you believe that because the Federalists were angry. And they came up with all sorts of reasons. This comes up again in the, 18th, in the, 14th, in the 12th Amendment debate, which I've read. I've read those debates very, very closely. I mean, Seth Hastings and Thatcher, they appear, but it's really in passing. There is no debate over what they say. Thatcher even says, let's pick this up in 1808. We're not even going to think about it now. It's just not that big a deal in the, in the, in the House debates and even less in the Senate debates about slavery. There are questions, there are partisan issues involved, there are all, all sorts of things involved. But slavery simply wasn't one of them. What I think we're seeing here is we're, we're judging causes on the basis of effects. There's no question that the effects that Akhil is talking about are real. They're real. But they don't proceed from the causes that he ascribes them to. That is what historians can find out. And it's what we do find out in this case. And it's important, I think, to keep the record straight. Because the question of democracy really is important as well in this period. It's not a fraud. It's not a fake. It's nothing that the Jeffersonians are racing. It's a real thing. And it comes up again and again. Well, we could then go on and talk about other elections, quite apart from 1800. And I'll, I'll stop with this one. There were um, two elections that were decided because of the Electoral College between 1800 and 1860. One where, where a, um, the candidate did not, who won did not win a majority. One where he didn't even win a plurality. In 1824, John Quincy Adams was elected effectively because of the Electoral College system. In 1860, Abraham Lincoln who won a plurality but not a majority, won a smashing electoral college victory. So, the two presidents who were elected because of the electoral college were John Quincy Adams and Abraham Lincoln. Not exactly a victory for the slave power. Cause and effect. 
All I ask is that we get the facts straight, that we understand where these things came from, because slavery is at the heart of American history in this period. It truly is. And it's at the heart of our institutions. And there was a slave power. And that slave power nearly ruined this country. But we have to understand how and why they did it if we were to understand either the past or the present. And with that, I'll leave you. And let's talk. So I think now we're supposed to just t uh, talk for a, yeah. a bit. So um, I do think that uh, uh, just as uh, England and America, it has been said, are divided by a common language, um, <laughs> historians and lawyers may look at the same thing with slightly different analytic frameworks. Um, in law, and especially in voting rights law, effect counts an awful lot. It's, it's most of the game, actually, under the Voting Rights Act. And, and you have um, uh, effect and foreseeable effect and a few quotations, and that will get you a victory every time um, in a court trying to analyze voting rights issues. So just forget history for a second. <laughs> Should I leave? <laughs> How about math? Okay, just the fundamental, basic mathematical point that whether, I don't care in the end about whether Jefferson's victory was a but-for consequence of three-fifths or not. They said it. They did say it again and again and again. Um, Jefferson is riding onto the Oval Office, on, uh, executive mansion on the back, backs of his slaves. To, um, but forget that. Just, just the basic mathematical point that if you have slaves, you're getting extra electoral votes, which you would never get in a direct election system. That's just freaking math. And you can't argue with math. And historians actually do argue. Math mathematicians actually, two plus two basically always equals four, and you won't find most math people saying otherwise. So it's a fundamental, and now here's a second point that lawyers would understand a lot. Oh my God, the more slaves you import, the more slaves you ransom, that you uh, capture freeborn slaves in Africa, um, and you capture them in, in these horrific slave wars, and bring them across the Atlantic in this hellish middle, middle passage in which a third of them die, and you sell them in auction blocks and separate families, the more you do that, any state, the more se uh, seats you will have in both the House of Representatives and the Electoral College. And that would be true if we had Congress picking the president as well as the Electoral College picking the president. It's the fundamental evil of the three-fifths clause. That's a moral point, but it's created by, well, math. You're getting extra clout, extra seats, extra votes because of extra slaves. That I don't need to use the word ploy. I actually have never used it. The New York Times likes to, you know, put things in, in their headlines, and, and authors are never, um, uh, uh, don't ever pick headlines. I say it's a foreseeable structural effect of three-fifths. It's just a mathematical fact. Oh, and they did recognize it on both sides, on, on Madison's side and on the anti-slavery side, and especially in, in 1804. And you can say they're talking points. They're, there's this, there's that. It didn't really matter. Jefferson would have won otherwise. Fine. He would have won otherwise. I don't care. It's still getting extra credit for extra slaves as compared to direct election. 
So our argument isn't about the electoral math. college. Math. Oh, okay. Yes, let's, let's actually have some applause for basic math. So we're, not so we're not arguing about the electoral college, we're arguing about the three-fifths clause, and they're different. They're different, they're distinct. Look. Three-fifths clause is embedded in the electoral college. That's quite true, but not for the reasons you say, and that's my point. History matters. Just as, on, even on the three-fifths clause, you know, the man whose statue stands right outside this door, not Abraham Lincoln, although him too, but Frederick Douglass would disagree with you on that. There are many ways to look at the three-fifths clause. I'm not going to get into all of them. But I am happy that, you know, basically, if you want to concede the historical argument of Keel, that's great, and then we can agree. Because I can agree with you that the three-fifths clause was a monstrous thing that, that hurt American democracy. I'd have no question about that. That's not a problem. And it's pro-slavery in its mouth. Well, of course. But, you know... It's so, pro-slavery in its math. So what? It's not, it's, not the, it's not the historical argument. The historical argument is the one that I've made that I think you've conceded, which is fine. 1840, fine. The Electoral College did not come as, about as a result of the slaveholders doing something to get it through, as you've argued. James Madison with the smoking speech, none of that's true. It just doesn't, didn't happen that way. Now, we can say that the three-fifths clause was a, um, uh, well, I have a whole argument about the three-fifths clause, which I don't have time to go into now. We can, we can talk about this another time. But you're, with, you're with Fehrenbacher? You think it's not pro-slavery? Sort No, Fehrenbacher doesn't quite say that. We, this is inside baseball now. But um, um, I, I think that the three-fifths clause was a, um, um, a, 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 it was because the framers all believed that wealth should be somehow represented in the represent oh, representation. Oh, not stocks, not bonds, not houses, Correct. not real estate. Correct, You know, only slaves. Oh, my no God, the head explodes. Well, and, uh, well, all right, we can go about the three-fifths clause another time. But my point is, look, it's fine, I'm happy. If the history, if the historians are allowed to tell what, say what the history is, great. But then I wish the lawyers wouldn't try. <laughs> Well, the historians who are on my side are pretty distinguished. The guy, you know, you may not like him, but Paul Finkelman does write a book called Slavery and the Founders, and he's an historian, and William Wecheck is an historian, and, and so the, there's a fair debate among the historians. Not anymore, now, there's not. Look, if we want to argue from authority, fine. I mean, Paul is a fine man and a fine historian. He's just wrong. <laughs> and, and Wecheck? And... Wills, you know, they're all... Wills isn't even a historian, but never mind, uh, never mind. I mean, uh, uh, what, what I can say is, what I hope is, and there's going to be a fruitful debate, and you're right about this, Akil. I mean, there is a debate going on, and I'm involved in it, and so I have a particular view of it, okay? And you can look at my book, and you can see whether I'm persuasive or not. So, and, and this is really has just opened up, and that's, that, that's fine. Um, I do think, however that over the next, and seeing where the books are coming from, we're going to be talking about this a lot differently five years from now than we might be now. Um, but that's just a, um, um, a look to the future. We have to, do, we have to, do, we have to pay attention to you guys. Mm -hmm. um, Why don't you go first? Let's see now. Oh, no, you do, because I haven't okay. even read them. Uh, so this okay. is, what's the story, and you can, I'll give my answer and you can give yours, behind the three-fifths number. Why this number and not another one? I believe... It's basically focal. It's plucked from a hat. It was the rule under the Articles of Confederation that dealt with taxes and how much each state was obliged to kick into Confederate coffers. 
for that purpose, the North, it was basically about how much wealth you have. Right. The North basically, and, and wealth is very hard to decide, uh, determine, so let's use population as a proxy for wealth. More people, more basically total GDP, we, we would say. And so the North says, oh, these slaves, but how do you count slaves? And the North says, oh, slaves are very efficient. You can whip them and work them hard. You can get them to work even harder than you know, um, a, a white shirker, so at least one. And the South says, oh my God, no, you should count them as zero. They eat more than they actually work. We can't get any work out of them. You should count them as zero. So in that debate, North wants it counted high, South wants it counted low. But now it's just a number. They come up with three-fifths. Three-fifths is about the, the, the uh, compromise of how productive a slave is compared to a free white worker um, and um, or, or free black worker, for that matter. And so they just take that three-fifths number that was all about du direct taxation and just plug it in to a debate about, uh, about representation, where, in fact, the anti-slavery position would be counted at zero, and the pro-slavery position would be counted at five-fifths. You, you agree with that pretty yeah, much? Sure. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it actually wasn't the rule, it was, it was, it was proposed and it was defeated in 1784-5, I forget which, um, yeah. and it's not there. And, and so it's, but lots of people come to the convention actually with three-fifths in mind. I mean, you read um, Pinckney, a bunch of people, and Northerners as well, they kind of agree about all this. Wilson, the man that you say, he, he is the Mr. Three-fifths clause. You're right. So um, if he's the great guy, well, he went along with it too. Yep. Um, it, it, we don't have time to go into all the intricacies of the three-fifths clause in here. I, I'm yeah, not, no, no, I, that was just the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... So we're, not, so we're going to move on. Um, I have, well, let's see. Um, first of all, if, I mean, this is the question that, that, that I suppose I didn't want to have come up, but I really, it really ought to because it's on everybody's mind. And, and actually, Akhil, you have a much more um, um, uh, intelligent and, and, and thought-out position on this than I do, so I'm going to concede to you on this. And that, the question is this. If you believe the college, Electoral College was created to uphold slavery... Do you think we are obligated to abolish it today? I want to add to that. If you do not believe that the Electoral College was created to uphold slavery, you may still think that we are obligated to, 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 to abolish it today on that account. My, my view on all of this is, is rather um, ambivalent on the Electoral College, but you have a different position. No, actually, my position is close to yours. It might actually have tainted roots in all sorts of ways, and there are independent and valid reasons for keeping it. That's what I, want, that's what I think they Here want to know, Here are two. Yeah. Just inertia. It's the system we have. And you make any change, you change the rules, you change the game, and all these pointy-headed academics say, oh, it'll be just fine, but there are unintended consequences. That's a perfectly valid Burkean argument for sticking with the devil that we know. Right. A second argument, and it's a very real one, and I actually thought this is where you would be coming from, mm -hmm. um, um, but... There really is, if you're going to do direct election, here's the problem. You're going to have to count votes. Here's the best argument for a direct election. Mm -hmm. It counts every voter equally, whether you're a Kentuckian or Connecticut person or Californian or Texan, whether you're in a city, a suburb, a rural area. Every vote counts equally. The way is is, uh, we do it within each state to pick the governor of Texas or New York or California or what have you. Everyone's equal. It's a powerful idea. I like it. Um, America likes it. The problem is within a state, um, there are rules about um, uniform voting, at least in theory, although there, in fact, is some variation, some sleek voting machines, others um, paper ballots and, and other things. But when you have direct national election, you're going to actually have to count 
votes in the same basket coming from different states, that's going to create some genuine administrative complexity. Here's just one. And I've always been open about this. And I'm the co-inventor of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. Right. But the problem is, suppose Texas gets the bright idea that we're going to let 17-year-olds vote so we have more Texans in the pot. And California says, oh, we're going to let 16-year-olds vote. And Arkansas says, oh, we're going to let dogs vote. And um, so there actually are a bunch of complexities that will be raised, and I want to be honest about yes, that. Yes, very good. Very good. Another question, though, just really one man, one vote, and this gets thrown at me, and I wonder what your answer is, is that that's true, but we do have a federal system. Mm-hmm. And so it's not the same, you know, what happens in the states is there, there are Correct. two sets of governments. So, so how do we deal... How does, how, does, how does the one man, one vote the thing The two arguments that... Yeah. There's so many crappy arguments for the Electoral College. 80% of them are wrong, and I'll give you a sentence why. Because most of them, oh, we need it to avoid third parties, which is not true. And, um, uh, oh, it's, a, um, um, it's um, a, a, a great sort of uh, um, balance in the system. So here's the, the, the uh, it, it, um, it, it prevents election fraud. And, and, oh, the recount problem would be a nightmare if you had to recount everywhere. Well, California manages to do that. New York manages to do that. 80% of the arguments are wrong because if they were right, every state is picking its governor the wrong way. Because here's how we do it. Call us crazy. But in Texas, California, Pennsylvania, everywhere, we count all the votes carefully. And if it's close, we recount them even more carefully, you know, except in Florida. So, <laughs> so that's actually how we do it. And so the argument against the, um, in favor of the Electoral College has to be a federalism or inertia argument. Inertia is just is the system we've got. We've got governors one way, president a, a different way. Or federalism, no, for some reason, and it could be a, any number of reasons, how you pick your federal chief executive should be different than how you pick your state chief executive uh-huh. in each of the 50 uh-huh. states. So it's, uh-huh. it's going to have to be something about federalism, and there are different ways. I gave you one, because there are different voting eligibility rules in different states, right. and that's going to be a complexity. Right, right, right. Good. You want to pick one? I have a good one here, but okay. you want to go? No, go for well, it. This is, I mean, and, this is and a, give your answer first. This is related. If the modern electoral college were truly representative, why do the winners of the two recent, of two recent, not the two, but two recent presidential elections, 2000 and 2016, mm-hmm. lose the popular vote? Mm-hmm. Does our electoral, co- electoral college needs a re- need a restructuring? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think, sure, I mean, you know, there's no question the fact that, that the, you know, every once in a while the system doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Say what we want about the Jeffersonians in 184. They intended for the, the, the majority president, however you might have judged it, to become president. They did not foresee this kind of problem. Um, and, and, and it's a problem, and it's happened twice. And why is that happening? Um, I'm not sure that it necessarily is dispositive about all of this. I, it's the thing that I carry around much. of the, if, it, if it did malfunctioned twice... In, within such a in short period of time, something is wrong. However, my Republican friends don't agree with me about this. <laughs> and here's what they could say. Oh, they were playing by those rules. The rules weren't, for example, winning the, the most um, uh, yards uh, in a football game. It's right. actually having the most points. <laughs> if, if you had different rules, they would have played the game differently. Right. That's point one. Point two, in 2000, people... 
ahead of time, we're predicting it's quite possible that Gore could win the Electoral College while losing the popular vote. Mm -hmm. So I actually think in, um, as late as 2000, it introduces a certain noise, but it, it basically um, is pretty symmetric. Here's why. Republicans tend to win more states overall, especially the ones where no one lives, the big boxes in the middle, <laughs> like Wyoming, okay? And you get a bonus of two sen extra senators. Um, uh, per, um, so Republicans win 30 out of 50 states, and they get a, a, a bonus because they win more states. Democrats, net-net, tend to win more big states, on average, seven of the ten biggest ones, and they benefit from a winner-take-all bonus. Mm -hmm. Those two bonuses roughly offset. Democrats win seven of the big ten on average. Republicans win 30 of the 50 states on average. And they Now, um, Trump hugely benefited because of the distribution of Hispanics, but if Marco Rubio or uh, Jeb Bush had been the candidate, actually, I think they would have run mm -hmm. a very different election. Um, some people think today the Electoral College is a bit skewed to the Republican Party, net-net. Um, uh, but it wasn't, I would say, as late as 2000. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Fun one. Um, uh, so... Um, We've got five minutes. Yes. Uh, had it not been for the Electoral College, do you believe the Union would have survived, broken apart, or descended into wow. civil war? That's a great question. I mean, I did say that the Electoral College is what elected Abraham Lincoln president in a sort of form formalistic way. Mm -hmm. I mean, Abraham Lincoln won 39% of the popular vote, but, I mean, you talk about voter suppression. His name didn't even appear on the ballot in the 10 southern states. He got zero popular votes, not electoral votes, popular votes south of Virginia. And, and let me tell you one other thing let's about... Call let's call candidate suppression. So, and, and on voter suppression, just so we're clear, just so you see the, the bad effects of the Electoral College, it's now 1910, 1912. Six states are allowing women to vote. Most of them aren't. Now, in a direct election world, you allow women to vote, you just doubled your clout. So there would have been much stronger um, incentives for, direct, uh, for, for um, enfranchisement in a direct election world. Even today... Um, if uh, uh, there would be good incentives, maybe too good, letting 17-year-olds vote and 16-year-olds vote, but good incentives to actually encourage people to get out to vote and a certain competition between states that I would say is a race to the top. One state says we're going to have same-day voter registration. Other states say we're going to have easy absentee ballots. And a third state says we're going to actually make Election Day a holiday. And a fourth state does it a different way, keeping the polls open for two weeks and actually seeing which one works the better, making it easier for people to vote um, because states would actually benefit by having more people turn out. So I actually think there are federalism reasons to, to move to direct election. Um, okay, but getting back to 1860, um, um, not only the... Uh, look, even if, if Lincoln had been on the ballot in Texas, he, was gonna, he wasn't going to win a lot of votes, okay? Texas was going to go for Breckinridge, no question about it. Um, but what you had in the case of the, uh, the 1860 election was one where you had four candidates running, in effect, and um, no candidate was going to get, um, um, of those four candidates, was going to get a, a, a majority or plurality even, I mean, a bare plurality, as, 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 uh, as Lincoln did. So, so that wasn't going to happen. The Electoral College decided it because, um, you know, the North voted completely for Lincoln. 
Lincoln won a majority of the, the, the northern states by a lot. You know, the lower north, upper north, you know, upper north, and you know, Illinois, obviously. So I think that the, 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 the election wasn't decided. It was only decided by the Electoral College because of the peculiarities of that election. Now, it was, however, and this goes back to Akil's point before, it's the, it, they were playing by the rules. They were playing by the rules. By the rules, Lincoln won a, an astoundingly large Electoral College victory. And under, because of that, the slaveholders seceded. They had no choice. That was their answer. The slaveholders seceded. And they say so quite directly, that with Abraham Lincoln as president, slavery is endangered and we are out of here. They say so in their ordinances of, of secession. So the system then truly broke down. But I don't want to blame Southern secession on the Electoral College. I want to blame Southern secession on slavery. Yes, we are agreed. Now, here's one final one. Since yes, we, we got 45 okay. seconds. If two scholars cannot agree on this very pertinent question, how should this be taught in school, specifically elementary and high school? My suggestion, they teach both teach of our conflict. ideas. Teach the on. Teach um, the and there's a documentary filmmaker here who's going to be putting together a, a film with, I think, different points of view. And that would be great, because historians don't always agree. Correct. Mathematicians do. And historians and lawyers never agree. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.